I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to me, if you would, please, to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. 1 John chapter 1, it's where we're going to look in God's Word. I'm going to read from verses 5 through chapter 2, 2 in just a moment. Um, but if you can open your Bibles, that would be excellent. Uh, on Monday, October 1st, uh, Pastor Scott uh, marked his 8th anniversary as one of our pastors at Grace. And uh, scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gives gifted people to congregations for uh, the building up of the body. And we are grateful to God for uh, Pastor Scott and his family and the ministries that they have in our congregation. So eight down, he's only got about 60 more and we'll be good. So uh, we are thankful to God for him. I was standing in the back as the children were leaving. It must be a children's choir day because a horde of people left the auditorium and uh, I'm glad to see that there's more than four here right now remaining. So uh, that's good. First John chapter 1, verse 5. Follow along as I read. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. His word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mentioned last week that I recently had a chance to speak uh, at the Thursday night large group meeting of the Navigators over at Millersville University, and the meeting began as it usually did with some singing and some announcements, and, and while the musicians were putting away their guitars and their microphones, uh, they were sitting down, John Birkenbein stood up and he started to introduce me, and when he began, I noticed that there was this low drumming, thumbing, deep humming sound emanating from the sound system. Uh, no one else seemed to react, and John didn't seem to notice it, but this sound was happening. And uh, uh, several thoughts went through my mind simultaneously. One of them was, well, I'm thankful at least somebody else has problems with their sound system. <laughs> this is what pastors talk about when they get together. They complain about their sound systems. Well, the other thought that I had was I started thinking about whether or not I could speak while that was going on and, and what I would do. How much of a distraction is this going to be to me, this sound? How much of a distraction is it going to be to everyone else? I decided that I'd be able to speak over it, but it would probably be difficult. Uh, fortunately, what happened is the sound got louder and louder and louder so much that even John noticed it, and he turned it off before I had to start. I was relieved. I did not want to, I want to compete with that sound for attention. It occurred to me that many followers of Jesus... They live with that sort of annoying hum. They live with a sort of spiritual tinnitus. 
Um, there are for many of us a low level, constant, throbbing pulse of shame. Is anyone here like that this morning? It's, it's sort of like a toothache. You know, you can function, but it hurts. And if, if your tongue or another uh, tooth or a bit of food touches that sore spot, it just really makes you jump. This low, throbbing, throbbing drone of shame. It's, it's the first thing you think about when you bow your head to pray. It's, you're drawn to passages in the Bible that, that try to soothe this, this sound. Max Licato writes this. Regrets over an earlier relationship, remorse over a poor choice, shame about the marriage that didn't work, the habit you couldn't quit, the temptation you didn't resist, or the courage you couldn't find. Guilt lies hidden beneath the surface, festering, irritating. This shame makes you wonder about God's true feelings for you. Sure, the Bible says that God loves you. God does that. That's who he is. But, you know, he loves you, but he probably really just doesn't like you very much. You fail him so often and so obviously. This is all you can think about, this low-level throbbing drone of shame. It's the, the, the music of your spiritual life. Christians are not the only people who have this problem. Uh, but we seem to be unusually good at cultivating this low level of guilt. Now, I understand why. I understand why it comes. We just read this paragraph. It says, God is light. If you want to walk with him, you have to walk in the light. But there seems to be an awful lot of gray in some of our lives. Now, you could try to solve that problem in a variety of ways, this contradiction between what we know about God and the lives we actually lead. You could try to solve that problem in a number of ways. Um, you could sever the connection between how you live and what you claim to believe about God. That's what uh, people did uh, in, in John's day in verse 6 that he, he addressed them. You can't claim to have fellowship with God, he says, and walk in the darkness. These folks that, that John was concerned about were shaped by a particular type of Greek philosophy that was separating the spiritual from the material. As long as we're spiritually okay, we say the right things about God, but it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies in the, the material world. John corrects that. You may not share their philosophy, that same philosophy, but it's actually possible to fall into that same trap. When, whenever you make excuses for the sort of life you're living, by, by separating what you believe from what you do, you're following this, this train of thought that these people have. In verses 8 through chapter 2, verse 2, John gives us two more ways that people try to solve this problem. He offers more solutions that won't work, and then he writes about the only remedy that actually helps. I want to show them to you this morning. I want to walk through this text with you because I want to help you deal with that throbbing drone of shame. The answer to that shame is not to avoid it or deny it or cover it up, but to go through it, to go through it so that you can embrace the remedy that God provides. So let's walk through this passage. First thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about the two more possible solutions. So there's one possible solution in verse 6. We just mentioned that and we talked about it last week. And now there's two more solutions that he's going to get to. And then we're going to talk about this remedy that really helps. So first, these two possible solutions. Uh, the, 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 well, the second one in the passage, but the first one that we're going to talk about is this. You could try this. You can uh, deny your identity as a sinner. 
you can deny your identity as a sinner. Verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, literally, verse 8 would say, if we, if we say we do not have sin, if we say we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves. Have sin. When John uses that phrase, have, when you have something, uh, it's a particular phrase that John uses. He's trying to describe your condition, that which is central to who you are, uh, what is central to what you have. And the passage says what we have is sin. The false teachers in John's, that John is thinking about when he's writing this, have, they've come to the idea that they had outgrown something like sin, something so mundane and so earthy as sin. They've outgrown it. But when John says, no, you have sin, he's talking about what goes all the way through. We all have sin. I think uh, John is echoing what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. I wrote some verses down on your note sheet. Verses 1 through 3, it says... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This sin principle, this, this alienation from God is endemic to what we think and what we love and what we desire, how we choose, what we do. We are sinners. This is not a label that people like very much. Uh, we've been in denial about it in our culture for a long time. In 1973, uh, several decades ago, Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin?, and preachers have been referring to it ever since he wrote that book. Carl, uh, Carlisle Marnie said this, Many Christians define sin as the sum total of acts which they themselves do not commit. I read about a conversation this week between two men. Uh, one was a, a, a follower of Christ and the other was, was not. And they were talking and the follower of Christ started talking about sin. And the man said, no, hold on a minute. I mean, I'm not perfect. I don't do everything exactly right, but I, I'm not a sinner. I don't think that word applies to me. His friend said, well, um, you know, you're, you're a businessman and you travel a lot for work. Uh, have you ever, in the years that you've been traveling, have you ever cheated on your wife? The businessman said, well, you're not going to tell her, are you? No, we're just talking. Uh, I, I have cheated on her a few times. Uh, when you fill out your expense reports, when you come back from, from your business trips and you infill, fill out your expense reports, do you ever inflate the numbers a little bit? Yeah, but everybody does that. I mean, everybody inflates those numbers. You file your taxes, don't you? Oh, we're not going to talk about taxes, are we? Because everybody cheats on their taxes. His friend said, well, you just told me that you're not a sinner but in the last 30 seconds, you uh, confessed to being an adulterer, a liar, and a cheat. If you're not a sinner, what are you? In the 1980s, People Magazine did a survey of its readers uh, asking them to rank sins according to numbers by how terrible they are. It was uh, kind of a joke. They, they called it the syndex. And at the top of the list of their, the syndex crimes, there was murder, child abuse, and spying against your country. Those were the, that's at the top of the list. At the bottom of the list, 
uh, smoking, swearing, and remember this is the 80s, illegally videotaping movies and television shows. <laughs> it was the 80s. We were all guilty. Uh, parking in handicapped spots was high, and, uh, but living together with your boyfriend or girlfriend was low. Cutting in front of line in some cutting in, in line in in front of someone was was really high, uh, much higher than divorce actually. And overall, in the list, readers said they committed 4.64 sins per month. I think I've committed 4.64 sins since I started this sermon. Be careful. John says, be careful. You may be participating in a form of self-deception. So verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. People lie to themselves all the time. They lie to themselves to protect themselves from truths that they don't want to face. Realities that are too ugly, that they don't want to accept Verse 8 is this call to acknowledge the truth. You know, sometimes that low-level guilt that drones on in your life, in your mind, is, is somewhat like, uh, it's, it's a form of denial. It's a form of disbelief. You're angry, you're upset, because you, you can't believe that you are actually as bad as you are. You're angry because you have this image of yourself, and you're a good person, and, and actually you see how you live and you're not as good as you think you are and it makes you mad, makes you angry. You have this self-loathing because you're not living up to the image that you have of yourself. Could it be that that image is one of self-deception because you're not facing this reality? We have sin. If, if you will not face the reality of your spiritual condition... If you won't acknowledge it, you will never get to the remedy that God provides. Don't deceive yourself. Now in verse 10 is another, another claim that people make. It's another solution that people make. It's the third one in this passage, the second one that we're going to look at today. Um, so we talked about, one, you can deny your identity as a sinner. Now number two, you can deny your actions as a sinner. You can deny your actions as a sinner. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now the verbs change. Verse 8 is about having sin, and verse 10 is about doing sin. The focus in verse 10 is on your actions. This is an astounding claim. There are people who were saying, I don't sin ever at all. There was a teaching that reached peak popularity in the 1800s uh, that comes from John Wesley. There are still some people who believe it today. I have never met any of them, but uh, it was peak in the late 1800s. John Wesley believed that it was possible to reach a state in this life of sinless perfection. So there are people, there were people who would claim, I have not sinned in 10 years. I have not sinned in 12 years. They would say things like that. Um, Charles Spurgeon was hosting a pastor's conference in the late 1800s in London, and he had a Methodist minister come who made this claim. He said, I have not sinned. I have reached a state of sinless perfection. And one morning at breakfast, Charles Spurgeon took a pitcher of milk and poured it over his head. And that man's sinless perfection disappeared with frightening speed. 
Now this claim in verse 10 is, is very serious. Don't make this claim. John says, if you make this claim that you, ha- you don't sin, you are calling God himself a liar. Ooh. Who's more accurate when it comes to describing the human condition? Are you more accurate or is God more accurate in describing your life? Whose words are more reliable? God says it over and over and over again, beginning in the very first few pages of the Bible. Look at his evaluation in Genesis chapter 6. I wrote it down. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. If you claim to be without sin, you are calling God a liar and his word is not in you. It's interesting. That's what verse 10 says. His word is not in us. Look back up at verse 8 again. It says, the truth is not in us. Those two things. Well, God's word is the truth. But it's interesting. uh, Maybe John is alluding here very gently to the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus is the word. If you claim to be without sin, you call God a liar and you don't have Jesus. Jesus is not for sinless people. You can't come to Jesus if you're perfect. So those are the solutions that people try. Uh, we have a good handle so far and I won't, won't work. There's, there's this undeniable conflict between who God is. He's light. He's the source of all truth and goodness and, and life. He's light and we are who we are. We live in darkness. There's disdain. You can't deny it. You can't deny it as a condition. You can't deny it as a circumstance. So what do we do about it? We turn to the remedy that God provides. On the way to that remedy, there's this verse, this command in verse 9. It's not really a command, I suppose. It's a statement with an implied command. But before we get to the remedy, we have to look at what verse 9 says. Most of you can quote this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Rather than deny sin, we don't deny sin, we confess them. And the word here is in the plural, sins. We confess sins, specific, identifiable actions, sins. Now, to confess something means to say the same thing. That's what the word literally means, to confess the same thing. To have the same mindset, to have the same attitude and viewpoint that God does. It is bringing into the light with your words that which you have hidden. Now, John is not necessarily talking about public confession. That's not what he's talking necessarily about. But it does make us think most of the shame, I bet most of the shame that thrums in your mind and your heart has to do with your private sins that no one else knows about. Sins that are hidden and are secret. Your sexual immorality your pornography, your self-abuse. These secret behaviors are the most destructive to your sense of calm as a follower of Jesus. And John says to them about them, confess them. Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy." 
Kevin Kim is a pastor of a church, and he was uh, writing one day about the, the services, their Ash Wednesday service tradition that they have at their church. Uh, they invite the congregation to come, and they move through stations around the church, and there's a station that they have devoted to confession. And they have a, a cross uh, uh, in display and several pieces of paper, and people receive instructions. When you come to this station, you're supposed to write a sin that you have committed on the piece of paper, fold the paper, and pin it to the cross as a sign, a reminder that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Well, one particular Ash Wednesday, there was a family there, and they had their, their son with them, their young son. He was six years old, and he came to the station, and they explained to him everything that was happening and what he was supposed to do. Would you like to participate? Yes, I would. And he took the piece of paper, and he was six years old. You can imagine he wrote in big block letters. And uh, he took his pin, and he pinned that piece of paper to the cross. And to his parents' surprise, he didn't fold the piece of paper, and he signed his name signed his name. This is, this is what it says. It said, God, I'm sorry because I lie. And then he signed his name. And, and, and his, his parents, they pulled him aside and they said, why did you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it up so that no one can see? And then this is what this kid said. I wrote my name on it because I want everyone to see it because if they know it was me, maybe they can help me stop. Hmm. Notice what John says about this confession. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive. God's response is tied to his character. We confess and it is his character, his faithfulness, his righteousness. God is faithful to his word. He promised that if we confess, he would forgive and God keeps his promises. He's faithful to do what he said. Look at Isaiah 1.18. Come now says the Lord, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God is true to his word. He's faithful. He's righteous. This is very odd. When I come and I confess my unrighteousness, God expresses his righteousness in forgiveness. That word unrighteousness and the word just in this verse, they're, they're the same, righteous and unrighteous. The same root word. My unrighteousness in confession elicits God's righteousness, his justice. Verse 9 uses two words to describe God's response. It says, he forgives and he purifies. He forgives because sin makes us guilty and we are debtors and he cleanses or he purifies because sin makes us dirty. So he cleanses. You might want to write this down. This is a good line from John Stott. He said, sin is a debt that God remits and a stain that God removes. Sin is a debt that God remits and a stain that God removes. Both of these verbs, interesting, are in the present tense. He does this presently. He does it right now. This is the present experience of followers of Jesus. It's our ongoing need for which he provides presently. Now in chapter 2, verse 12, he writes about sins having been forgiven in the past. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. In chapter 2, verse 12, have been forgiven. And now he writes, they are presently forgiven. I think he's writing about two different aspects of following Jesus. 
If I want to borrow John's language or the imagery he uses in John chapter 1, we human beings, naturally, we walk in darkness. We We were walking in darkness and someone came and told us the good news about Jesus and God turned the light on in our life and we turn to Jesus and we trust in him. And all kinds of things happen when you do that. Uh, you, the, uh, the Holy Spirit, we receive the Holy Spirit. We become God's adopted children. We become part of the new family, the church. God forgives us for our sins. He, he gives us eternal life. So we talk about this turning, this being forgiven in a definite eternal sense. But then as we walk with God, we continue to sin and we need currently consistently to be forgiven. Present tense forgiveness. Sin continues to break our fellowship with God and this forgiveness restores that fellowship. And That's what he's writing about in verse 9. Now there's one more thing that we should talk about in verse 9 before we get on to the remedy in verse 10. Did you notice this word? All. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Some of you in the room have particularly tender consciences. And you know, you read this, you cannot possibly confess all of your sins. There are things that you have done that you can't remember, and there are things that you should have done that you never thought of, that never entered into your mind. What do you do about those? The text says, God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I confess my sins. I, as many as I can remember, as often as they come to mind, I confess my sins. But I need God to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's my only hope. Now there's a problem in verse 9. I wonder if you noticed it. How is it possible that God could be righteous, that God could be just, and forgive unrighteousness. How can God be just and say to people who are unjust, it's fine, I forgive you? How can that be? No judge in any of our courtrooms would be righteous if he forgave a criminal. So imagine a man walks into a courtroom uh, and, and he pleads guilty. He says to the judge, I did it, judge, I did it. And the judge says, you know what? I forgive you. We would not applaud that judge. No one would say, oh, that judge is so just. No one would say that. The judge is there to enact justice. There has to be justice. The victims of the crime of that person are crying out for for justice. It's not just to forgive the unjust. So how can God be both just and forgiving? Verse 7 hints at the answer when it talks about the blood of Jesus. And it's the subject of the first two verses of chapter 2. So we're going to talk about what God has done, this remedy that he has provided. First, uh, two things. First, he has provided an advocate. He's provided an advocate. Verse 1, My dear children, I write to th- this to you so that you will not sin. He, he says that, I think, because he's a little concerned that people, when he, when he keeps writing about how we have sin and we continue to commit sin, there are people who would be too lenient about sin or too flippant about it. And he said, that's, that's, not, that's not my aim. In fact, I wrote this so that you wouldn't sin. But when you do sin, don't treat too sin, light, sin too lightly and don't, don't be overwhelmed because if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
The word translated advocate here is a Greek word, paraclete. Maybe you've heard this word before. It means to call alongside to help. It's a beautiful word. Jesus describes it to us, to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called alongside to help us. Some translations, when, when it uses it, it speaks about the Holy Spirit being the comforter or the helper. John 14, 16, he says, and I, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. There that word is, another advocate. I'm one already and here's the Holy Spirit. He's going to be another one to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit helps us. He helps us as followers of Jesus, follow him by remembering Jesus' words and obeying Jesus' words. Now here in 1 John chapter 2, John is writing about a specific form of help. Like in a courtroom, we have an advocate, we have an attorney called in for the defense. He speaks to the Father for us. And who is it who speaks to the Father for us? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. All of those words are important. He's Jesus, the man born in Bethlehem who grew up in Nazareth and preached in Galilee and was crucified on Calvary and resurrected outside of Jerusalem. He's Jesus. He's that guy. He's the Christ. That's his title, not his last name, but you know that. Christ, of course, is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He's, he's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. And he's the one that God called alongside us to help us. How can it be that one so exalted would come to help we who are so lowly? It's as if your high school sophomore is taking physics and needs a tutor, so you hire Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest physicists in the world. He, he just recently died, so he's not available. But, but imagine Stephen Hawking or, well... Our advocate has come back from the dead. But, or imagine a third grade uh, uh, gym teacher and he calls his third graders together and he says, okay, boys and girls, today we're going to learn how to throw a football and I've got a special teacher, a special guest. His name is Carson Wentz and he's going to come in and give us a few pointers. Who is this who's come to our aid? Who is it that God has sent? He has sent Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the son of God, the king of Israel, our helper. We need to talk about that title, The Righteous One, but this reminds me, on, on Friday, I had breakfast with a young man. He uh, graduated from Millersville University. He's a pastor out in Ohio now. And I was talking to him over breakfast, and one of his coworkers was at my college at Cedarville with me when I was there. This, I, I don't remember him, uh, but this young man, he went to Cedarville in the mid-'90s, and he went there because his father, who was a pastor, said, if you go to Cedarville, I'll pay for it. If you go anywhere else, you're on your own. Man, this young man really didn't care about Christianity at all. He was not a follower of Jesus in any sense of the word. And in fact, when he got to Cedarville, he broke as many of the rules as he possibly could. And they actually dismissed him from the school for uh, drinking, and he was doing drugs too. And uh, he had trouble, terrible troubles. Um, and he was arrested one day because when he was drunk or high, I can't remember which, he hit a police officer and ran away from him. So he's called before the judge. He stood before the judge, and the judge said, young man, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he said, I, I'm guilty. I did it. The judge said, son, I don't think you understand how this works. 
He said, Judge, I did it. I'm completely guilty. The man's father was in the courtroom, and at that point in time, and the judge was kind of looking in bewilderment at this young man, that his father stood up and he said, Judge, I am his father. I will take responsibility for him. I will ensure that whatever you decide takes place. I, I am here to speak for him. My friend said that was the moment that the penny dropped in that young man's mind. We have a paraclete, we have an advocate, one who is called to speak for us in our defense. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, we should think about this title, the righteous one, for just a minute. Uh, the, the NIV translates it as a title, and that's just fine. It was a phrase that the apostles loved to use to refer to the Lord Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Peter preached a sermon in Acts chapter 3. We talked about this last week in Sunday school. Uh, Peter and John had healed the lame men. He is speaking to the men in Jerusalem, the crowds that are gathered there. And in Acts 3.13 he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy, and here it is, righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Stephen said something similar in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, the righteous one. Stephen makes us think about the prophets. Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. Who did God send to help us? He sent Jesus Christ, the righteous one. My hope for you, brothers and sisters, is that you would learn to become more impressed with Jesus than you are depressed about your own sins. More impressed with Him than depressed with, about yourself. For some of you, your sin is all you can see. It shapes your whole attitude as a follower of Jesus. It is all you can think about and it depresses you. And you know what? It should. There's no use denying it. Don't belittle it. You hear this conversation take place sometimes. Someone will say, I can't believe that God would ever forgive me. I'm so bad. Don't respond by saying to them, you know, you're not that bad. That won't help them. Instead, you should look at them and say, you're exactly right. And you know what? You're worse than you even know. You're all depressed about the sin that you see in your life. You don't even see half of it. You don't even know how bad you really are, how your life dishonors God. You're worthy of an eternity of God's righteous wrath. He should lock you up and throw away the key. You can't believe God loves you. I can't believe it either because you are completely unlovable. But God's love is unbelievably great. And its greatness is tied to his great son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And God has called him to your side to be your advocate. You should be much more impressed with him than you are depressed 
about your own sin. God provided us with an advocate. Now, secondly, God has provided for us a sacrifice. God has provided a sacrifice. Verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, the word translated here in my translation, atoning sacrifice, is the Greek word halasmas. It's not used a lot in the Bible, but where it is used, it's used very, very important. It's uh, translated, some translations, the word propitiation. It's not a word that we use very much anymore, propitiation. To propitiate means to satisfy or appease wrath. It's the price that is paid that that satisfies God's wrath so that he's no longer angry, but he's now propitious or he's inclined towards sinners with mercy, not wrath. Propitiation is a good word. When the Old Testament speaks about sacrifice, it points in this direction. It just occurs to me, I remember several years ago when Kobe Bryant, the basketball star, when it was revealed about the affairs that he was having, the uh, extramarital affairs, uh, well, his wife decided to, to stay with him, but there was a picture, and newscasters commented on this, a picture of them coming out of a restaurant soon after this news had been released about his extramarital affairs, and they noted that on her ring she had a massive diamond. He had made propitiation <laughs> with this gift. Now, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was a New Testament scholar in Great Britain. His name was C.H. Dodd. He did not like this translation, and he did not like this word. He didn't like the concept. He thought that propitiation, to talk about Jesus' sacrifice as a propitiation, was demeaning to God. Because he knew about Canaanite gods and Greek gods and, 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 and Roman gods who needed to be propitiated. And the problem with Greek gods and Canaanite gods and Roman gods is that they're vain gods. They're capricious gods. They're temperamental gods. They're gods that demand bribes. And he thought that Jesus' sacrifice here is like a bribe, that you have to pay God to be kind to you. And he thought that that was demeaning to God. But he didn't understand Uh, what the Bible tells us about God's wrath. Well, he preferred a different word. He preferred a different word for halasmus. He proposed the word, not propitiation, but he proposed the translation expiation. Expiation is another good word, which we don't use very often. Expiation is not about God and satisfying his wrath. Uh, Expiation rather means uh, washing away sin, washing away sin. This is what what Jesus did, Dodd said. He washed away sin. And he said, to talk about God's wrath is to dishonor him. He, he sometimes used to argue, if God is really angry with us, why did he send Jesus? If God really is so full of wrath toward us, if he's really angry with sinners, why didn't he just stay angry? Why did he send his beloved son? The answer to that question, of course, is that God can be both angry and loving at the same time. Uh, you know what that's like and you know how that's possible. If you're not convinced that you can be angry and loving at the same time, I have three arguments to convince you. Two of them are girls and one of them is a boy. Right? You parents know what I'm talking about. So do you spouses and probably most of you friends. It's possible to love someone and be angry with them at the same time. What Dodd seems to not realize is that the Bible does talk about God's wrath 
toward us because of our sin. In the first 50 Psalms, if you read the first 50 Psalms, we've read them all now, right? We're on Psalm 86. If you read the first 50 Psalms, 14 times you will find the phrase or something like it, God hates sinners. Ever heard that expression? God hates sin but loves sinners? Well, it's half right. God hates sinners. God is angry with us, not in a Canaanite or Greek or Roman way, not in a vain, intemperate, capricious way, but in a way that is committed to doing what is right because God is light and he is so committed to goodness and truth. He hates, he despises lies and he hates uh, badness. He hates unrighteousness. And what Dodd seemed to ignore too about this very passage is that the context is about our relationship with God, about having fellowship with God. God is angry at sin. He hates sin. And Jesus came to satisfy God's wrath. I think the Greek word halosmos means two things at once. It means both expiation and propitiation. Jesus' death on the cross washed away our sins and it satisfied God's wrath. It does both. It's on the basis of his death that God can be both righteous and forgive the unrighteous. How can Jesus' sacrifice be anything but perfect and sufficient? Remember, it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if you have any doubts about that, you should know that Jesus' sacrifice is as big as the whole world. That's what he says. He is atoning sacrifice not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There are believers here and there and everywhere, and all of them make this common confession about the Lord Jesus. He is the all-sufficient Savior. He's the only one qualified to be the Savior. And you are not. Some of that low hum of guilt comes to your life from the sense that you ought to be better than you are that you ought to be able to save yourself. Along the way, I've been trying to talk about where that guilt comes from and what it produces. We already talked about how it's fed sometimes by a denial or a disbelief about the fact that you're as bad as the Bible says you are. And sometimes we talked about how uh, this low level of guilt means that you're more depressed about your sin than you are impressed with Jesus. Well, here, notice, it, it can be fed by this persistent belief that you really ought to be able to make it on your own that you really ought to be better. You ought to know better, to to be better, to be good enough. If God should just give you a little boost, you'd be okay. No, no, no. There's no denying it. You need a Savior. If you've never turned to Him and trusted in Him, you must, you must turn to Him and trust in Him. Confess your sins. Recognize that He and He alone has made satisfaction with God. Once you make that decision to turn to him and trust in him, you turn to him over and over and over and over again. You can't go around it. You can't go around your sin. You can't deny your sin. You can't minimize your sin. You have to go through it. You have to own it. You have to confess it. But the good news is that he, Jesus Christ the righteous one, is on the other side. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we ask you that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would work in our lives so that we would be more impressed with our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, 
than we would be discouraged by our sin. Lord, I do pray that even as we've been talking about this, you would help us, that you would fulfill your purposes for this passage in our lives, that we would not sin, that we would walk in the light and that you would teach us to turn from temptation, that you would do that work in us. But when we do, give us hope and gladness and confidence in your faithfulness and your righteousness. We are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, our advocate, who pleads with us before the throne of grace. He paid for our sins for all time, for all of our sin, and we have life in his name. Thank you that as we turn to this table, we can celebrate by partaking of these elements in this life that we have in him. It's in his name that we pray, amen.